Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm so happy that you're listening in today. In fact, if you're listening for the first time or you'd just like to reach out, send me an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. We're starting a new series this week called Love Handles. Now, I know you might have just gotten a little offended and thought, what right does he have to talk about my love handles? But no, we're not talking about those love handles. In this series, we're going to take a look at the most common wedding vows and how love handles a marriage. Most wedding vows start off with the line, to have and to hold. But what does that mean? What does it mean to take someone as your wife or husband and have them? And let's assume that hold doesn't mean a physical embrace. What does that mean? Let's listen in to our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. Good morning. We are going to call this series Love Handles. I'm assuming that you know what love handles are. Are some of you guys experts in love handles? You don't have to raise your hand, all right? I'm going to put two pictures on the screen, and it's possible that one of those pictures is of me. Now, which do you think? How many of you guys think it's the one on the left? You're wrong, okay? The one on the right, that is what I look like after three or four days in the sun, okay? At least... At least that's what my wife keeps telling me. (laughs) Something like that. Those are not the kind of love handles we're going to be talking about. How does love handle whatever? For the next four weeks, we're going to talk about how a God-honoring love handles building a great marriage. And we need this. Because as you undoubtedly know, our marriages are a mess. People you know, people you care about are not in a healthy, God-honoring marriage. Maybe you're not in a healthy, God-honoring marriage right now. It's a mess. Maybe you were there, but now you're out. Listen, guys. Bad marriages mess up God's kids. So bad marriages dishonor our God. You believe that? He's the one who created marriage, and he's the one who tells us how to make them work. Bad marriages mess up his kids. That's us. So they dishonor God. And if you're a Jesus follower, that ought to matter to you. And even if you're not a Jesus follower yet, you need to lean in because bad marriages are messing you up too. Now, how many of you ladies, when you were just girls, fantasized about the perfect wedding with the perfect guy living in a perfect house with perfect little kids? In fact, you even chose their names before you ever got married, right? And how many of you guys, when you were teenagers, fantasized about finding the perfect woman who would consider you the perfect man and with whom you could have sex every single day? Probably your fantasies didn't go far beyond that. Now, how many of you guys who've been married more than a year or two, now listen, some instructions for you. Don't answer. Don't raise your hand. Don't move. Okay? How many of you guys and ladies who've been married more than a year or two have discovered that there's a wee bit of a gap between your fantasies and the reality? Don't move. (laughs) Here's reality. About 50% of our marriages don't make it. Sobering, isn't it? Breaks God's heart. It's killing his kids. It's killing our kids. Numbers are hard to pin down, but it's something like this. More than 40% of our first marriages don't make it. The numbers get higher for our second marriages. They get even higher for our third marriages. But it's way worse than this. 
because a whole lot of the marriages that do not end up in divorce are still God dishonoring. Do you believe that? It breaks his heart because it's killing his kids and it's killing our kids. Our kids are struggling to build good marriages because they've seen so few. God designed marriage to make us better. He designed marriage to make life better, but it only works when it's done his way. Now, and this stuff doesn't surprise you. You know these numbers are true. But listen, in what other area of life, if the odds were that bad, if the odds were that bad for so much pain and so much more damage, would you still risk it? Would you go in? A lot of you guys have kids. If there was a 50% chance that today your kids are going to be killed in a car wreck, would you give them the keys? Would you at least put a helmet on their head? Maybe wrap them in bubble wrap before you stuck them in the car? Or if you knew that there's a 50% chance that tomorrow when you walk to the mailbox, zombies are going to attack you, would you at least take a shotgun with you? Now, I know God has a sense of humor. It's kind of weird, isn't it? He made us guys and he made you ladies very, very, very different. And then he plants in us this passion for each other, this longing to find that one with whom we can do life together till death do us part. It's there. You hear it in our love stories, our fairy tales, our songs, our movies. You felt it inside of you. We long for this intimate connection, this intimate partnership with this one who is so different than we are that it will inevitably be hard. So how do we minimize the dangers and maximize the chances of success in our marriages? I mean, marriage can be incredible. It can be incredibly good. It can be incredibly important for your growth, your well-being, for your kids. Marriage was designed by God to be a good thing, powerfully good thing for his kids. So how do we minimize the dangers and maximize the chances of success? That's what this series is about. Now listen, you may not buy what I'm going to say next because you hear the opposite every single day. At least think about it. Any two people can build a great marriage if they do it God's way. You buy that? Any two. Any marriage, even yours, can be a good marriage if you choose to do it God's way. Regardless of where it has been, regardless of where it is right now, it can become a healthy, vibrant, God-honoring marriage if you choose right now to do it God's way. Our marriages are a mess because we don't. Partly because we buy into this stupid, stupid myth. This is a myth you hear all the time. It's a lie from hell. Here's the myth. If you want a perfect marriage, you have to find the perfect one. You ever heard that before? God has made for you a soulmate. He's hidden that soulmate somewhere in this world and he dares you to go find them. And if you don't find them, your marriage is going to crash and burn. That's the stuff of Disney movies, lifetime movies, love songs, love stories. And it's a lie from hell. A great marriage will not magically happen because two people who were meant for each other finally find each other. A great marriage will be built. It'll be built by any man and any woman who choose to love each other God's way. 
That's how it's done. That's what we're going to talk about. And this stuff's going to apply to most of you because a lot of you guys are married right now and so it's for you. And a lot of you guys are going to be married sometime and so it's for you. And a lot of you guys know people, you care about people who are in a marriage that is struggling and it's for you too. It's for those of you who are Jesus followers. These are godly principles, I hope. And it's for those of you who are not Jesus followers yet. You need to listen in because this stuff's going to work for you too. We're going to build this little series around a promise. A promise that most of us have already made. I made this promise 45 years ago to my wife, Julie. Here's what I said. Basically this. I, Stephen Pattison, take you, Juline Moore, to be my wife. To have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse. For richer, for poor. In sickness and in health to love and to cherish and forsaking all others to keep only to you for as long as the both of us shall live. And then Julie turned around and she said those same things to me. It was a promise that we made to each other. It was a promise that we made before our God. Chances are you've said something like it or maybe even these words. You don't have to turn and look at your spouse, but let's read them together again. To have and to hold together from this day forward, for better and for worse, for richer and for poorer, in sickness and in health, both to love and to cherish, and forsaking all others, to keep only to you as long as we both shall live. Now, when you said those words, did you mean it? Did you ever really think about it, what you promised? Did you know that this is more than just words? This is really a formula for building a God-honoring marriage. If you live these words out, you're going to be well on your way. If you don't, you won't. To have and to hold, whatever that means. That one kind of makes you scratch your head a little bit, doesn't it? That's what we're going to talk about today. And then for better, for worse, you'll see both. For richer, for poor, you'll probably see both. In sickness and in health, and if you're there long enough, you're going to see both. That's next week. To love and to cherish, because the two are different. That's going to be in two weeks. And forsaking all others, keeping only to you as long as both of us shall live. And that's how we're going to wrap up this series. Now. I know that a lot of folks don't say these vows today. They write their own, right? And that's cool. I don't mind. I really don't. As long as you understand that it still takes this to build a great God-honoring marriage. These are the dream builders. So here's our starting point. I'm going to just start out by giving you some assumptions. These are my assumptions. I hope they're God-honoring. I hope you'll buy in. Here are my assumptions. Number one, any two reasonably compatible people can build a good marriage. You may not buy that. I don't care. It's true. Any two reasonably compatible people can build a good marriage. You don't have to be find your soulmate, whatever that junk means. Number two, it is not about finding the right person. It's about becoming the right people. That's what it's going to take. Number three, building a great marriage is going to be hard. And number four, building a great marriage is going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it for you, for your kids, for your God, for the people who watch you. 
Here's one more assumption, and I'm not going to talk about this assumption in this series. I'm just going to leave it as the elephant in the room. This is what we believe as Jesus followers. In a great marriage, a great God-honoring marriage, God will always be first. He will always be first in everything. God is first, spouse is second, everything else is going to come after those. For me, God is number one. Julie is number two. Everything else comes after that. For Julie, God is number one. I'm number two. Everything else will come after that. And if we can live that out, we're going to be laying the foundation for a good marriage. So here goes. To have and to hold. To have and to hold, which may be the hardest part of the vow to figure out. In fact, I spent some time digging around on the internet this last week trying to figure out what it meant originally when they put it into the vows. And you get all different kinds of opinions. No one really knows what they meant when they put it into the vows. It's confusing. Does it mean that a man and a woman own each other to have and to hold? I have her, she has me. And there is a sense in which that works. There's a weird little verse over in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians that a lot of people hate. They hate it because it is so countercultural. In fact, it's flat out offensive to a lot of people in our world. Here's what Paul says. He says, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband. Huh? And it says, the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. So when Julie and I were married, when she became my wife, she yielded her body to me. And I did the same to her till death do us part. Other people think this to have and to hold primarily has a sexual sense, which it could have meant centuries ago, to have and to hold intimately till death do us part. And that could be what it meant. We're not sure. I'm going to take it a little bit of a different direction this morning, kind of related to the first one, a direction that I believe is God-honoring. Here it is. When we vow this vow, we have a spouse, husband or a wife. She is mine and I am hers. There is a sense of ownership. This just isn't my body anymore. I don't get to do whatever I want with my body It's his first, and it's hers as much as it is mine. Sorry about your luck. When we were married 45 years ago, she became, in a sense, mine. It's not just her body. She doesn't get to do with her body whatever she wants. It belongs to God first. She has to honor him with it. And it also belongs to me. To have and to hold. Because she gave herself to me with these vows. But she can also take herself away from me. I can take myself away from God. And I can take myself away from my wife. So the having part happens when you're married. The holding part is what comes next. That's the hard part. How do you hold what you now have? Now, I've got options. I can figure out ways to hold my wife even when she doesn't want me to hold her anymore. This is something that might work, okay? 
However, my wife would chew through these. I'm certain of that. She's scary. There are some husbands and some wives who try to hold their spouses through fear. And that is abominable. They will be held accountable by somebody who is way bigger and way stronger than they are. And there are some husbands and some wives who try to hold their spouses through shame, even Christian spouses, and that is abominable. They say things like this, if you leave me, you're going to be sinning against God, right? If you leave me, you're going to mess up our kids, right? And that might be true, but it is not a way to hold a spouse. So how do we do it God's way? Let me try this one on you. By nature, we pursue what we don't have. Makes sense, doesn't it? We pursue what we don't have. Once you have something, why do you keep pursuing it? That just doesn't seem smart. Which is why we can be so crazy in the pursuit of someone we think we love. I will do anything for love, right? Except I won't do that. That's humor. Especially when we're not sure we're in love anymore. We quit pursuing. Typically, husbands quit pursuing their wives after a time. Typically, wives quit pursuing their husbands after a time. And when they stop the pursuit, the hold part becomes way, way harder. By the way, I'm not just talking to the unmarrieds. This goes for all of us, those who've been married 40 years, those of us who've been married 60 years, this doesn't quit. Now, in what other context of life can you think of another situation where you can simply neglect something or be lazy about it and expect to see improvement? I'm going to give you my formula for staying healthy and fit. You can have a body like mine, okay? Here's how you do it. I eat what I want and I eschew, I don't exercise. You know why? Because exercise hurts. <laughs> Wear you out. So how's it working? That's my formula. Can you be lazy with respect to your body and expect to stay healthy and fit? Stupid question, isn't it? How about your job? How about your business? What if I decide I'm just going to get up what I want, go into work when I want, do what I want. When I get tired and bored, I'm going to go home. That's going to keep my job, right? It's going to build a successful business, right? Try it out next week. See how it goes for you. How about your yard? Can you simply neglect your yard work, sit back, and expect your yard to prosper? In bottom line, I don't like to mow. Fertilizer is expensive. Watering is a bother. Sometimes you get your feet wet. I certainly don't intend to weed, but I want my yard to look just like the yards that are tended around me, right? And I know that's a bad illustration for some of you because some of you guys don't care at all about how your yard looks, but you get the point. Marriage is like yard work. Isn't that rude? If the grass is greener on the other side, chances are you need to do some mowing and some fertilizing, some watering of your own yard. If the grass is greener on the other side, you need to tend your lawn, your lawn. 
Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that marriage is God's idea. In fact, it goes all the way back to the very first book of the, of the Old Testament, the one we call Genesis. God creates the heavens and the earth. It's all great. And the pinnacle of his creation on earth is when he creates a man and a woman. It actually says this. It says, God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he slept, God took out one of his ribs... God closed up the opening, then God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. Now, if you're reading the Hebrew, this next sense, I'm going to try to put it into a little bit more vivid English. He says something like, holy cow. Remember, she's naked at the time, right? Holy cow, that one is perfect, which is essentially what it means when he says, at last, this one is bone of my bone, flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from a man, which explains why he leaves his father and his mother and he is joined. He's joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Got to remember that when this was written originally, it wasn't in English, it was written in Hebrew. And just like English words, Hebrew words can have different meanings. Same word, multiple meanings. And this word has different meanings. It can mean cling to, join to, cleave to, which is why we use it that way, whatever that means now. But it can also mean to pursue, to pursue closely, to pursue hard. It can mean you keep pursuing even after you have caught her. Or him. Psalm 63 8 uses that word to Bach. David says, I follow close behind you, God. I keep on pursuing you, God. Keep pursuing you, even though your strong right hand holds me securely, even right now. Huh. Judges 20 45 uses that same word to Bach. The tribes of Israel are fighting each other because. The tribe of Benjamin, some of their people had done something abominable, so the warriors from the other tribes went after the warriors of the Benjaminite tribe, and they killed 18,000 of their men. Then it says the survivors fled into the wilderness toward the Rock of Rimmon. The Israel killed 5,000 of them along the road, and then they continued the chase. They debach. They continued pursuing. They continued the chase until they had killed another 2,000 of them there. Get them. You don't take that as kind of the model for marriage. I just want to look at the word. Oh, that's not yet, okay? Maybe holding the one we have has something to do with continuing the chase. With never quitting pursuit of the one that we promise to love till death do us part. I mean, if you can think back that far, you did a lot of pursuing when you were dating, didn't you? You probably even continued pursuing after you were newlyweds. You'd buy her these little gifts. You'd play her favorite songs on your eight track. You'd take him to his favorite restaurant, make his favorite food, call each other those stupid little nicknames that everybody else thought were kind of corny, right? Remember those things? Hmm. I'll do anything for love, right? I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. Remember that great song by some guy named Meatloaf? Here it is in his immortal words. I'm going to do anything for love. I won't do that. Here it is. nothing to do with the sermon. 
I'm just trying to fill in a mystery for those of you who wondered about that song and I thought it was funny. It's kind of like the commercial, right? So now let's get back to it. Guys, I'm going to say no one. I'm not going to say no one because there are some real jerks out there. But no one with any sense gets married and thinks, I want this marriage to fail eventually. What I want is for this intimacy that we're going to feel to fade. I want to give this thing five or ten years maybe, and then I want to split up and just see my kids on the weekends. Uh, We start with good intentions. We dream of building a good, strong, God-honoring marriage, and then life starts wearing us down. Unless, unless we can do something to keep our marriages strong. One of those things that we do is to keep pursuing the one that we have already caught so we can hold the one we have. I'm going to make it practical. Just two little ideas, but they can be big. They can be game changers. Try these two out and see what happens between you and your spouse. Ready? Here's a first. When you think something good, say it. When you think something good, say it. By the way, if you're thinking something that's not good, shut up. (laughs) That's a biblical principle. If it doesn't build up, shut up. And that applies to your marriages too. And there are very few exceptions to that. But I want to focus on the other side. When you think something good, say it out loud. Maybe even in front of somebody else so that your spouse can look good. Why would you rob your spouse of a blessing by holding it in? Now, sometimes we read verses from the Bible and we forget to apply them to the closest relationships we have, which is our marriage. How about this one? Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage one another every day. Encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, which includes today, I think, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's huge. Why don't you read it with me, if you don't mind, just to get it. Ready? Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hmm. What do you think? Could that mean that one of the ways to keep deceit out of your marriage is to keep on encouraging each other every single day? What would it look like? Well, it is going to look different for the guys than it is for the girls because God made us different. And I know that there are exceptions to this, but here's a general rule, and you'll have to decide whether it applies to you. Women crave love. Men crave respect. Women crave love. Men crave respect. So guys, encourage her with words of love. Ladies, encourage him with words of respect. Every day so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Practically speaking, a couple ideas. How about guys, if you pursue her with words of non-sexual affection, (laughs) which sounds weird to a lot of guys, non-sexual affection, we're not even sure what that is, because guys can make nearly anything sexual, right? It's one of our spiritual gifts. (laughs) But what if we tell her we love her with no sexual intent, because, because, out of because. 
And I'm no good at this, guys. I mean, when I was telling Julie about this last week, she gave me this strange look and said, why would you preach this stuff when you're lousy at it? (laughs) And I said, because I want to preach God's truth, not what I'm good at, right? Good answer, huh? Try adding a because. I love you because you're still here. (laughs) You shouldn't be, what I've done to you. I love you because when I come home, my house is clean. Guys, listen, if your house is not clean, don't use that one. (laughs) It will sound like sarcasm. I love how you dress up sometimes and you just look gorgeous. I love how you stood by me when it was hard. Because. I love you because. Do you think a few becauses could put a sparkle back into the eyes of that child of God that you married? How about you ladies? How do you speak to this son of God? That's who he is. The son of God that you married. Do you know that too often ladies focus on what we guys are not rather than what we can be and what we are? Can you pursue us with words of affirmation, with words of respect? Remember the principle? If it doesn't build him up, shut up. Don't use those words to each other. I'm going to use them from here. If you keep telling your guy what he's not, you're going to crush him, defeat him. He's just going to want to take his ball and go home. But if you'll find ways to affirm him, to respect him, to build him up, you will help him grow into the man that he wants to be, that you want him to be, that God wants him to be, that God made him to be. Perhaps. When you complain to your husband that he's not a spiritual leader, there's nothing in him that wants to rise up and be a spiritual leader because you're not listening to him anyway. He recognizes you don't respect him, that you don't want to follow his lead. So what if instead you just choose to find whatever he does spiritually good and affirm him for it, respect him for it. Maybe agrees to go to church, thank him. That's so cool. Maybe he chooses to read his Bible, even a little, or to say a prayer, even a simple one. Why not thank him? Look up to him for it. The way you choose to see him, and it's a choice how you see him, will impact who he is and what he becomes. Bottom line, guys, and I know that what I've been saying this morning is not PC, and I care about that about this much. What I care about is truth and grace. Bottom line, guys, what she wants to know is this. Do you love me today? Can you tell me why? Ladies, what he wants to know today is this. Do you believe in me today and will you respect me today and will you prove it? That's just thing one. When you think something good, say it. Here's thing two. When you think something special, do it. If you know it's going to build him up, do it. If you know it's going to build her up, do it. Here's another verse we forget to apply to our marriages. A lot of you guys know this verse, but I'll bet you have never, ever applied it to your marriage, and you should. James was the brother of Jesus. James despised Jesus for a long time until he raised from the dead. That's a game changer. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this. He says, remember, it's a sin to know what you ought to do, and then you don't do it. You ever applied that to your marriage? It's a sin to know what you ought to do and then you don't do it. 
If you know what you ought to do for your spouse, if you know the good thing you ought to do for your spouse and you don't do it, if you know how to build them up and you don't do it, James says, you're sinning against your God. Huh. If you know she needs you to listen, needs you to, do it. If you know that he needs you to ride along for his trip to Lowe's, get in the truck and do it. If you know that she needs you to help bathe the kids, put them to bed because she's frazzled, do it. If you know that he needs a little loving, do it. If you know that she needs a little doting, figure something out. When you know the good thing that you ought to do for your spouse, bless them with it. And God will take delight in how you have honored his kid. Because that's who he is, God's kid. That's who she is, God's kid. And when we don't do it for his kid, God, our dad, gets ticked. Which is why James says to him, it's a sin. Now, you think that stuff will make a difference? When you think something good, say it. When you think something special, just do it. Pursue your spouse. Pursue her till death do you part. And if you do, you might find it a little easier to hold what you have. I'm going to close by taking a verse out of context. Some of you guys are thinking, what's new? It comes from the book of Revelation. This is the Apostle John writing to the church at Ephesus. First he encourages them and then he scolds them. In fact, he scolds them rather harshly. Here's what he says. He says, I know the things you do. This is the good part. I've seen your hard work. I've seen your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are really not. You've discovered they're liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Good stuff. Huh. Turns the corner here. He says, but I got a complaint against you. You don't love me and you don't love each other. Notice that. You don't love me and you don't love each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works that you did at the first. And if you don't repent, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand from the place among the churches. Maybe I'm really not taking that verse too far out of context. I have this complaint against you, God says. You don't love me. And you don't love each other as you did at first. In fact, I think those two are connected. I think that by not loving each other as we did at first, we're not loving our God as we did at first. So he says, look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me, God says. Do the works you did at first. You know what that means? It means if the grass is greener than somebody else, you need to tend your lawn. You buy that? I'm going to pray for you guys in just a minute. A lot of you guys need some praying for. A lot of you guys need to do some praying with each other. Some of you guys need to pray for your spouse. Remember, this isn't about whether he or she heard. It's whether you heard, whether God has convicted you and you respond to how God has nudged you. God's for you. God's for your marriages. If you'll love each other the way that he wants you to, you'll build a great marriage. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for your kids. 
It'll be good for the people around you who watch you. It'll be worth it. It'll be hard. Maybe that some of you guys who are sitting here are not Christians yet. That's where this thing gets started, putting God first. He's got to be number one to really build a God-honoring marriage. If God has nudged you on that, I'm going to be hanging around right down here in the front. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to pray with you. It may be that some of you guys have been looking for a church home and maybe you figured out maybe this will be a cool one. Whatever. That'd be really neat. Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life and you want us to be your family, we'd love to have you here. Come down and we'll chat and we'll get that done. And maybe some of you guys just need some prayer. Maybe you're in a marriage that is really, really struggling and you know you need some help. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to draw alongside you in some fashion, lean in in some way where we can be a help. We want God's kids to prosper. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for your presence. We know that you're here. And I pray that what we have sung this morning, what we have said this morning, what we have thought, these things will have honored you. And we know that you respond. We're sitting here in your presence and we know sometimes you nudge us, you encourage us, you challenge us, you stir us. And God is never wise to push back against your nudges. You're so wise and so good. We want to be children of God that please you. And for those times we fail, we're so grateful for your grace. It is overwhelming. We know that with you, we can always start again. And you're there for us. For that, we give you thanks. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Won't you stand as we sing?